Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 70, Summer Projects, recorded on July 5th, 2017. My name is Julie Faithan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. How are you? I'm good. We had a lovely 4th of July last night, and uh, I came home and watched three hours of other people's 4th of Julys on TV, and I'm feeling totally patriotic. You know what I think is really nice is that at 4th of July time, everyone becomes a crafter. It's kind of like Halloween. I mean, I think it actually happens with most holidays, but all sorts of people who never craft, you know, show up with, hey, I glued this to a mason jar and I made a flag like this and I hung up a decoration that I made. And it, I think it's kind of a fascinating thing about why we all become makers at holiday time. Well, there's an urge, I think, to make some gesture to decorate and then it's not a holiday which has a lot of other requirements you don't have to cook a turkey you don't have to buy a million presents or bake a cake so you have a little bit of freedom in choosing how to spend your time yeah fourth of july and freedom no but Yay. i mean but it's <laughs> but it's also like you know it's not i mean you can buy a lot of decorations and yet i really feel like people tend to want to make things for holidays. I don't know. I think there's something in it to me because when you're a kid, you make a lot of stuff for holidays. I don't know what it is, but it's an interesting phenomenon. Okay. So uh, let's talk about all the making you've been doing. Yeah, I've been making things. But I actually, so I've, I've been ve uh, fairly productive lately doing a lot of stuff. I had a big article deadline um, for Cloth, Paper, Scissors magazine for their, it's like their December issue, but it's due now. Um, but they asked me to write an article uh, about Scan and Cut. And Cloth, Paper, Scissors, if you're not familiar with that magazine, is a very much a mixed media magazine. And I, uh, you know, I talked to the editor, Janine, a little bit about it. And she said that when they took a reader poll and they asked readers, like, what is the, if money were no object, what is the art tool that you would buy? And an enormous number of people said the uh, scanning cut. So I was kind of pleased and surprised to hear that. So I had a lot of fun trying to figure out how to write an article that really uh, showed off the scanning cut as a mixed media tool as opposed to, I mean, as opposed to a lot of things. You could sell to people who want to just cut a thousand, you know, pieces of vinyl. You can sell to people who are interested in crafting. You can sell to people who are interested in, uh, you know, whatever. But this was very much about, like, how do you use it to make art? So I wrote this article that was all about cutting your own stencils and stamps and screens and then combining them to make a bunch of different projects. So that was fun because I also like to see – one of the things that I really love is seeing, like, how you can push a single supply in a million different directions – Mm -hmm. And so this actually was that sort of times two because I was both pushing the scanning cut in a million directions and pushing the tools that I made to look different and do different things. So you actually, instead of making projects, you made tools from your scanning cut, which you then demonstrated some projects that could come from those tools. Yeah, because I think the thing to me that is sort of magical about the electronic cutter really is that you can make all these different tools that, yes, you can make them by hand. It just takes longer, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just think that, for me, that's the magic trick. Well, what I like is when you show me, you know, seven different ways, 12 different ways that you take one small thing and 
transform it. Yeah, and I think it's the same thing as like, you know, um, I love those posts that people post like on Instagram and on their blog where they're like, one blouse, five ways, or, you know, this mm. is how the same pair of pants looks on five different people in different sizes and shapes and how they style it differently. Or I just, I, I think we all like that idea that the things in our life, whether they're clothes or, you know, whatever, have versatility. I mean, one of my favorite cookbooks I think it's the Victory Garden cookbook is organized by fruit or vegetable. So like you open it up and you're like, what can you do with tomatoes? And there's like a hundred thousand tomato recipes. What can you do with uh, fennel? And then there's, you know, your 60 fennel recipes. And I just, it again appeals to that idea of versatility. That cookbook also does another thing, which I think you often do in your posts, which is it tells you what's, how to tell a good a good fennel bulb from a bad one and how to mm. store it and all this stuff so you get a lot of peripheral knowledge around all the vegetables well i like when you give peripheral knowledge around the tools you know it's so funny because i always i feel it's such a weird fine line because on the one hand i know people are always asking what pen are you using what you know what notebook do you like and so i try to provide that information but on the other hand you never want to feel uh, or at least I never want to feel like people are trying to sell me on things. So it's a weird, delicate balance where I kind of want to give people information, but I don't want to make them feel like I'm trying to sell them anything. I don't know how, I, it, whatever, it's a tightrope walk, right? Right. And also you don't want to make people feel like, I can't try this if I don't go out and buy, you know, $20 worth of new pens. Yeah. I mean, so I recently taught a lesson for Lifebook, which is this big online um class and I had a post about it on my blog this week actually but I used gouache in my projects and gouache is not necessarily a supply that a ton of people just have on hand so I was very clear to say to people listen I'm using gouache use markers use pencils use acrylic paint use watercolor use what you have because unless there's a chemical reaction issue most of the time you can make something else work for what you're doing tell me what gouache is so gouache is essentially, you know, the best way to think about it is an opaque watercolor. That's the way. And I was actually, but to confuse things even more. What? I know. So in the, in the olden days. Uh, I mean, when I'm in my <laughs> lifetime. Uh, yes, in your lifetime and potentially in my lifetime too. When cartoonists used, uh, used to hand draw everything instead of doing it um, uh, computer. Mm -hmm. They would use gouache to paint in a lot of the cells. So if you buy an old cartoon cell, which is often on a transparency or something like that, that is very often gouache because uh, it is, of course, because like watercolor, you can remove it from a surface if you really had to, right? Um, it's somewhat water soluble, but it's opaque, so you can layer things, which is important. Um, but I was using a kind of gouache called acrylic gouache, which is thanks to science and all our cool things that we can do. Um, it has all the properties of gouache, except that when it is dry, it does bond permanently the way that acrylic paint does. So it's kind of neat. It's the same way that I know there are some watercolor and watercolor pencils they've now found that are, you know, water soluble until they dry and then they change. I mean, I don't know the chemistry of all of it, but it is kind of fascinating. Acrylic gouache. Acrylic gouache. It's spendy, but it's fun. And a lot of times the thing is people can't tell the difference. If you paint something 
people often say, is it oil? Is it acrylic? Is it, you know, gouache? Is it watercolor? Is it, I mean, you know, you, it's, it's can be hard to tell unless you're doing very particular techniques. So I always tell people, I think it's like what you feel comfortable with or what you're enjoying working with is the right, is the right type of paint for you. Now for the last, I don't know how many days you've been on your hundred day project where you do a single face each day in any medium in 15 minutes or less. Yes. I believe I've hit day 93 today. So good. So there's a week left and that's it. And I know at some points you wanted to give up. Why don't you talk us through the different ups and downs as you went through this? Okay. So let's start at the very beginning. So the hundred day project is this idea that you do something creative every day for 100 days, okay? And I've done plenty of projects that were 30 days, 31 days, something like that, you know. And it, it, was, it was a marathon, but it was doable and I felt fine. And this project was fine probably until the 60s when I just started to be like, why am I doing this? Even though I had set up, I thought, some pretty clear parameters to make my life easy. So... I had to be less than 15 minutes. So that meant I couldn't agonize and spend an hour each day, right? Because we've all got 15 Although, minutes in the day to do it. what you did was because you videoed the process, mm. you then added time each day because... Right, I have to edit the video every day. Right, right. Yes. So that did certainly now, I mean, I have it down to a science, but it still does take some time to edit the video and blah, 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 and yada, yada. Um, and also, you know, I think I could have done this project if I didn't have to share the face every day. And a big part of this project is sharing it because it, it has been wearing on my psyche and this is an ego thing purely, but it has been wearing on my psyche to have to show a lot of work that I didn't particularly like. And it has also been like, there may be things that I want to try and I feel a little nervous because it might turn out like poop. You know, and so that has been a kind of interesting thing. And I know all the things that I say and I think, which is screw that. Who cares what other people think? Do you know, be you, experiment, play. And 100% all that stuff is true. But, and it's a very big but, um, it's kind of like... It's kind of like saying, listen, everybody wants you to be real on Instagram and everybody wants you to like be true and not like, you know, show like only perfect things. But on the other hand, the people who do like complain about their day, show their messy house, you know, not look great. Guess what? They don't have a lot of people who follow them, right? Because so, some of Instagram is aspirational. It is. And people want to be inspired by it. So it's it's been a sort of interesting ego dance to have this experience of like showing these things and like I can tell you just from you know looking at things when I started the project I was getting about a hundred new followers a week and now towards this end of the project I get about 20 new followers a week and I don't think it's because I've changed enormously or like the world has changed enormously but I think this is a this can be a trying project even for those who are watching it you know Oh, God, another face. Yeah, well, it's like another face, another thing. It's like, you know, it becomes a little one note. It's an interesting idea. And yet, on the other hand, you know, there are so many varieties within faces. It's funny to think of it that way. And it's also like 15-minute art is always going to be 15-minute art, you know. it. And so that also has been an interesting thing for me to realize which is I work fast and I've always worked fast and you can get a lot done in 15 minutes but 
you ha really have to limit size. You really have to limit your expectations of how like nuanced it's going to be. And in that sense, it's been good for me because sometimes I think I overwork and overfinish stuff and I have created some pieces that I love and think are amazing and, you know, totally brilliant. And, and part of it has been because the time limit has forced me to really, um, you know, not go as far as I might have. So let's talk about two things. One is let's talk about what you've learned through the process. And then let's talk about the fact that you've managed to do this while on the road, while having no supplies and the kinds of things that you compromises you've made. Right. I was just thinking that tomorrow I'm going on the road actually tonight and I need to make sure to pack my little tripody thing so I can do some faces while I'm a gone. Um, so a couple things. One is lack of supplies has been a good thing almost every time that it's happened because it's forced me to really focus on the art of drawing. You know, you can hide a lot with color and with pattern and with like fancy techniques and stuff because it's just, it's like, it's still, you know, nice to look at. But when you have like a ballpoint pen, you gotta, you gotta draw, man. You gotta really draw. A ballpoint pen and a hotel paper pen. Yeah. And the thing is, I, I've never considered myself someone who could draw. I mean, one, I'm about to teach a class in New York called Sketchbook, Yes, You Can Draw. And the first thing that everybody says when they come to class is, I can't draw. And then, of course, the second thing I say is, me neither. Because we all have the sense that we can't draw because we think that we should be able to, like, photorealistically draw a horse without any effort. And that people who can do that are people who can draw and, you know, people who can't are people who can't. But I think the truth of it is something else, which is drawing is a skill like anything else. It's a practice. And and I, uh, I have had many experiences in which the following advice has come back to me over and over, which is you have to draw what you actually see, not what you think you see. So what that means is when I want to draw a face, I want to draw like these two eyes and this nose. But sometimes when I look at it, I don't actually see that. I see like sort of a round shape next to a rectangle shape next to a triangle. And you have to draw those things that you see. And then the shock of it when you finish the drawing is that it actually does look like the thing you're looking at. Whereas if you draw what you think you're seeing, it doesn't. And, you know, Milton Glaser said at a lecture I went to, I've always remembered this. I think it will stay with me for the rest of my life. He said... You never really see something until you draw it. Well, one of the things that also is interesting, you did a lot of different mediums and techniques. So sometimes I see you putting together a collage of scrap paper and I say to myself, well, that's not going to be a face. But when you're done, it is. Yeah, I mean, that's the other cool, cool thing about faces, which is we want to see faces. I mean, last night at the 4th of July party, there was a guy wearing like a tie-dye shirt. And I was like, I see a face. I see a face. You know, you're looking up at a cloud. I see a face. You see a box sitting on the floor with two holes that look like eyes. I see a face. I mean, we want to see faces. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many different ways you can make faces. I'm actually, so I'm teaching a class uh, in Florida called Interesting Faces which is based on this notion of that we want to see faces. And so why create these sort of doll-like, nymph-like faces when you can create so many more interesting and arresting faces that, you know, make a statement and are kind of cool and creepy and interesting? Anytime you have eyes. 
Anytime you have eyes, it's a face. It stops you. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing always, right? Which like is the reason that my producer wouldn't let me wear the apron that I had that had the big eye painted on it because you just look at an eye. You know, anytime I have, I think one of my obsessions with eyes has been that it's the quickest way to create a focal point in a piece of art. Because we look at it. So you, so you're just mentioning your classes. You, after saying that you're not traveling (laughs) and you're cutting back on your teaching, you suddenly have a full palette of classes. I do. I've got a full plate of classes. And, you know, I think the thing is I go through these swings where I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of being on the road. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to take it. But then somebody offers and it looks like an interesting place to go or it's someone who I like very much or whatever. So I actually have a have a quite a full little uh, July, August of teaching. I'm going to New York. I'll be at the Ink Pad July 22nd and 23rd. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it. In many ways, the Ink Pad will always feel like my hometown store. It was one of the first places that I taught regularly. They have a beautiful um, space that's totally unexpected in New York called the West Beth Community Center. It's sort of a big room with lots of windows and it feels like so much space, you know, in New York where you're always so cramped and it just has daylight. It's like just a lovely space to be in and I like the people think, Pat. So I'm teaching teaching my sketchbook, Yes, You Can Draw class and my Make a Pamphlet Art Journal class. So two very different classes, but I think um, fun and they relate in some ways. Uh, I'm teaching a class on July 29th at my house. So this is a test. I've never taught at my house before. I wanted to see how it would go. Yes, you have. You did just before you left New York. That's true. You had one class in your apartment there. So this is now in the Boston area. I'm teaching at home. Um, and I have, I have white carpet in my house, unfortunately, cause I'm a renter. Ooh. So I knew I couldn't teach a painting class here. So it's, um, it's a class that's focused again on really on drawing and on creating this book form of a tunnel book. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm teaching like five classes. Is that possible? Mm, in, in three days at Whimsadoodle on St. Petersburg. That's like August 4 through 6. Um, so this is an it's an interesting wide range of classes, including two classes I haven't taught before. One is Interesting Faces. That's the, be the first time I'm teaching that one. The other is the Expanded Square class that everybody's been asking for. So that one is going on there. That's the one where I tell, cut the... If we haven't seen it, t- yeah, it's pretty tell cool. us what it is. It's based on this theory of Notan, which comes out of... Um, Japanese uh, culture and it's basically you take a black piece of paper and you cut shapes from it and then reverse them and then the positive and the negative create a harmony and the goal is to kind of create you know the yin yang or that perfect negative and positive image where they're in harmony so that's gonna be a fun one I'm teaching color mixing there which sounds like something that you're like yeah I know how to mix colors but let me tell you This class is based on some ideas that totally blew my mind about color mixing and I feel like have made me just like a better, more capable artist. So I'm excited about that. Um, And I'm trying to remember what else I'm teaching. Is this terrible? I can't even remember. Um, well, you've just listed two things. Right. So I'm teaching the interesting faces, you know, the color mixing. Oh, I'm teaching sketchbook. Yes, you can draw also in uh, at St. Petersburg. I'm teaching the expanded square. Oh, and I'm teaching my carving stamps for patterning. So if you want to create those really cool rotating repeat stamps and you want an in-person class, that's the place to go. And then there's another set of 
there are a couple of other sets of classes in the more distant future yeah, that you've already I am. listed. The one I'm most excited about is I'm going to be in Syracuse um, next year in March teaching a three-day workshop. It'll be my first time teaching a three-day workshop um, where we are going to be doing some mighty big collage. So I think that's going to be super fun. We're going to make our own papers, and then we're going to work on two different huge collages at the same time. And... It's going to be awesome. There is something about working in multiple days that makes a big difference, I think, at least, to your art. And so the other class, which hasn't been scheduled or hasn't been defined yet, is you're going back to... Yeah, I'll be back in, in, at Whimsadoodle in October. We just haven't picked classes yet for that. I think we're going to see how this set goes and then sort of okay. figure it out. Okay. So yeah, and actually, a class that I didn't mention that I'm teaching uh, is I'm teaching a scan and cut class, which is not open to the public, which is why I didn't mention it. Um, but it's for it's part of Brother has this annual meeting for their dealers every year where people can learn new techniques and new ideas. So I usually teach the scan and cut class there, and teach people you know tricks and tips about the machine while also, of course, you know, demoing. Uh, while they make a project of some kind. But it's fascinating. You know, you want to learn what the newest thing is in sergers or sewing machines or embroidery machines or whatever. You take a hands-on class to learn. And I teach the same class 10 times. Aye. So, uh, and it's the kind of thing where by the 10th class, the jokes are all in the same spots. You know, I've got my timing down. But the funny thing, of course, is that each group is different. So one group will laugh hysterically the whole time, and I'm the funniest person on earth. The other group will just sort of sit in silence and look at me. So you never can tell. It's like being a stand-up comedian. It is, and it is that thing, too, about, like, you have to sort of relax and remember. I mean, teaching is a performance of a certain kind, at least the way I do it, it is. And so you have to kind of trust yourself that it's right and that you can't, you know, you can't let their energy sort of suck you down. You have to sort of keep it light. And the funniest thing is sometimes at the quietest classes, people will come up to me after and be like, oh, you're so funny. And I'll, I'm like, thanks for laughing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I actually really enjoy that because my favorite thing is the dealers really interface with Scan and Cut customers and so they give me loads of information about the kinds of questions people are asking and what they're wanting to do and stuff like that. And I find it really fascinating. Okay. And uh, you are about to go on HSN again. Is it next week? I am next week, next Tuesday. I'm going to be on at some sexy hours, I think 2 a.m. I know. 2 a.m. 11. I can't remember. I'll have to post it on my blog. Um, but I ha it's with a brand new machine. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's a brand new, never before seen. This is the debut of a spectacular new crafting tool. Um, and I'm really excited about it. So I have known about it for a while and been working on it for a while. And I have a, uh, been beta testing one of them here in my house and it's been killing me not to be able to share it. So I'm super excited to be able to finally go on air and say, hey, this thing exists and it's cool. So. So we'll all have to wait and find out. I know, I'm super excited. But 
This is the very reason that brother the Scan and Cut website has changed its name, right? Yeah. So if you look at any of the Scan and Cut social, they're no longer like the Facebook page is not um, Scan and Cut USA anymore. It's something like Brother Crafter. And the same with their Twitter and their Instagram and all that stuff is they've changed it over so that it's not just the Scan and Cut because now they're going to have new things in their lineup. Well, they've already revealed. Have they? They've already released the P Touch embellish, which yeah, is another new so thing. Again, the P Touch embellish is a new tool, and that's an exciting thing. It's a ribbon printer for anybody who doesn't know about it, um, and it's a pretty cool thing. I, I, for when I first saw it, I did not necessarily think it would be my thing, you know, because I was like, how often do I print on ribbon? Well, the answer is never, because I don't own a ribbon printer. But <laughs> now that I do, I have been labeling all the things that I own. It's awesome. And then uh, why don't you tell us about going to New York? Uh, so I went to New York uh, because I needed to film some things at YouTube space with my brother. So basically, so my brother is the cameraman for my um, scanning cut videos that I do. And he is currently raising money and getting things together to shoot a feature film. And so he's not going to be available to do things with me in the fall. So we've been trying to knock out a ton of videos before that happens. Um, and so we, we decided to do as much as we could at YouTube Space thinking it would be sort of a fun, different look. And he gets to play with some of the camera equipment there, et cetera, et cetera. So I uh, traipsed off to New York to go do that. Now, YouTube Space, for anybody who doesn't know, is a space run by YouTube, which is owned by Google. So it's in the Google headquarters over in Chelsea Market. And it is free studio space and equipment. So that's light, sound, whatever, everything. Uh, for you to use while you uh, are there, you can book a certain number of days at YouTube space, depending on how many um, subscribers you have on your channel. I think you have to have at least 10,000 to book a day. And then I think if you have 100,000, you can book two days a month. And if you have like a million, you can book three days a month or something like that. Um, but so we booked one day. And we, so some of their studios are totally blank and then they have these other spaces that are, look like rooms. So we booked the hangout room, which looks like a sort of a New York City living room. It's got a brick wall and a bookshelf and stuff like that. Um, and we booked the boardroom, which looks like a big wood paneled room. Um, and we were using those two spaces basically because they were dressed already, meaning we didn't have to like bring in a set. Uh, and we had a lot of fun shooting a bunch of different videos. We shot one project video and then like four, um, technique videos and using different spaces, using different equipment. Matthew, my brother was really sort of figuring out some of the film equipment as we went. Um, but it was fun to be creative, not just with the projects and what we were doing, but also remember that filming is an art and with the, sort of the art of doing it. And plus collaborate. I mean, I work by myself all the time. And so collaborating with someone else is really fun and interesting. And I liked it when I would, I would say something and he'd be like, I don't think that's clear. And so we would redo it. Um, and that's always nice because sometimes I do feel like I'm talking to myself, <laughs> which I probably am. And didn't you also, like when you first went, you have a friend, Jen Mason, 
who's planning to open a cheese shop. So you went with her to the fancy food I uh, did. So those of you who convention. know me know that one of my good friends is Jen. And uh, she appears on my vlog all the time, usually with a cheese plate in hand. Um, but she's opening a cheese shop called Curds & Co. in Brookline, Mass. in August. And um, so she was going to the fancy food show with her husband. And she said, do you want to come along as a taster? Because neither of them drink coffee or like olives. And I just sort of have a different palate. So she was like, do you want to come and taste some stuff for me? And I was like, wow, that sounds like a horrible job. You want me to go and taste stuff for free for you. <laughs> so I was like, sign me up. So yeah, so the first two days that I was there happened to overlap with the fancy food show. So I went and met her for a couple hours each day. And, you know, we would go to the olive stand and the olive guy would talk you through why their olives are better than any other olives based on the method of making and, and have you taste, you know, this green olive versus that green olive versus this black olive versus that black olive, you know, trying to make you understand what's happening. And then my job was then to be able to say to Jen and to Matt, her husband, um, why I like something or why I didn't like it or what I thought was interesting or not interesting or do you know what I mean? Because you're not just, it's not just I like it, I don't. It's you have to actually have the intellectual content of being able to say whether or not you think it would be a good fit for the store. You know, is this going to be the kind of thing that brings people in or is this the kind of basic that people want to be able to pick up while they're there at the store? Is this an adventurous thing that you have to have an adventurous palate to eat? You know, is this something that feels comfort foody? Like figuring all that out. And then I also really did like the education portion of it where, you know, you talk to, there were these guys who were selling salami and they were talking about like why their salami is different from any other salami and how they source it and, you know, the way that they process it. And if you look at the, you know, outside paper stuff that you peel off it, why that's different. I mean, there everybody has so many subtle differences. It was really, it was a good experience and it was fun and fascinating. I ate risotto out of a giant wheel of cheese. They like, I don't know how they did it. They like heat the cheese over some sort of Bunsen burner thing. And then there's, they make risotto inside of it. It was, it was like magic. Talk about the adopting an elf. Oh yeah. So there's this one. So obviously so many cheese shops. So we ate a lot of cheese, like a lot, like a lot, a lot. And one of the first things Jen said to me is, oh, you're such an amateur. Don't take the cracker. Cause they offer you, <laughs> you know, like crackers and they, when they give you like cheese, they often have like a cracker or something to put it on. And she was like, never take the cracker. I was like, okay. So I didn't understand it, but about halfway through, I was like, oh, I get it. Don't eat the cracker. It's wasted space. Um, but so, uh, one of the cheese mongers there said that, um, they basically have this adopt an alp program. And what it means is that there are some cheesemakers who do uh, cheese the old fashioned way, like Heidi's grandfather used to, where they go up to the Alps in the summer and they have the goats, you know, sneak snack all over the beautiful alp grass or whatever it's called. Um, and Alpen Meadows. Meadows and they, you know, climb the craggy cliffs to get the sweetest, most delicious grasses. And so of course the cheese that is made from that goat milk has the taste of that like unbelievable, you know, alp altitude grass or whatever it is. Um, and so if you adopt an alp, what it means is that you, your shop gets ownership of that any cheese from that area of the Alp 
um, for some period of time in your region so that if, you know, that particularly sweet, delicious, amazing tasting cheese, if somebody's looking for it, they can't go to Wegmans. They can't go to the cheese shop down the road. They can't go to, you know, they have to go to your place if they're anywhere in like the Northeast region or whatever to get it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Hmm. What other things did you see non-cheese-ish? Um, so there was a lot of alcohol of all kinds. There was ice cream up the yin-yang. Um, and so the other thing, of course, is that you constantly see people, you know, eating things where you're like, where did you get that? Um, but there's... What's any, any interesting or unexpected flavors of ice cream? Um, nothing that I really saw because we really did not. So first of all, I actually probably spent a total of like four hours at the fancy food show as, cause I spent maybe two and a half hours the second day and like an hour and a half the first day. So I did not really get to even see the whole thing. I probably only did like 10 aisles, if you can imagine. And this yeah. thing is huge at the Javits, two floors. I didn't even make it to the bottom floor, which is where most of the ice cream and stuff was. Um, I know. But they have – so all the big players are there. So, you know, Biscoff is there. So, you know, the the big guys are there. But then all the little – unusual place that are there i taste we, there's one booth we stopped at in the import the foreign section where which was italian sodas and i think we must have tried they had like 25 flavors i think we tried close to 25 flavors of italian yeah. soda um which was a terrible taxing delicious wonderful experience um and there was a lot of like bacons and meats and hams and all sorts of crazy stuff like that i saw a lot of um so so restaurants also come to the fancy food show it's not just food shops okay so and one of the other things that's interesting is when you say they see that you're a retailer and the first thing they say is how many stores do you have and it makes you feel stupid that you only have one even though you know One's gotta start gotta somewhere. start somewhere. But it's like it's so funny that everybody starts with how many shops do you have? Hmm. In other words, how much attention? How much attention should I give you I right now? You. Exactly. But of course, one would assume that a shop buys more than a restaurant. Although I don't know, maybe a restaurant buys more than a shop. But I do know that the retailer badges definitely people were excited when they saw you. So. I read an article in the Washington Post about the fancy food show, and it said that one of the big things this year is Korean flavors. You know, there were a lot of dumplings and other things, and I was desperately sad. Sauces, marinades, rubs. We were not allowed to stop at those places because those aren't cheese shop things, and we were on a mission. That's sad. It's hard to be me. What a hard life I live. You give and give and give (laughs) to your friends. I mean, I probably gained a pound just for her. So we ate and ate and ate and walked and walked and walked. And um, then after the YouTube space thing, I had some time uh, the next day and I went to MoMA. And I went back to see the Rauschenberg exhibit again. And one of my favorite Museum things, of Modern yes, Art. And one of my favorite things about seeing an exhibit more than once is that you really do see things differently because the second time through, you are uh, seeing it differently because everything's not new. There are some things that are familiar, right? And so this time through, I was able to spend a lot of time, especially because I was by myself, I watched all the videos. And normally, you know, that's not something you do because you're too busy looking at everything else. I read a lot more of the signage. I spent some time with work that hadn't been like, ooh, shiny, you know, like the big bold ones. 
Um, and I really enjoyed that. And I also got to see an exhibit that I liked very much. I'm trying to remember the exact name of it, but the gist of it is something like abstract work by women artists post-war or something. It's something Was like it the that. abstract expressionism? Yeah, but I'm not, sure, I'm not sure it's all expressionism. Maybe it is, but yes, probably. That's probably what it is. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that everything in that exhibit was pulled from MoMA's collections. So that was, uh, let's not say interesting, that was fascinating to me for a couple reasons, which is one, I was glad to see that MoMA was in possession of so much work by women because it's quite a large exhibit. But two, there was a lot of work that I had seen previously and not realized it was by a woman necessarily. Uh, I don't know why you know, you should have or shouldn't have or like whether that's something that it's a good thing to make note of or it's a good thing that you don't make note of. Um, but there was some work even that I was familiar with and I somehow, you know, didn't really think of it as being women's work. There was, well, there was one room that was interesting to me. It's sort of an unphotographable room in some ways because every single painting in it, they clearly had curated it this way. Every single painting in there was white. Yeah. So it's an, it's an, it's an entire room of white paintings, which was fascinating because when you have a room full of white paintings, you're like, oh, yes, I see the subtle differences between these various white paintings. By the way, I just looked it up. It's called Making Space, Women, Artists, and Post-War Abstraction. There you go. Internet to the rescue. Exactly. So a after a while, were you able to make subtle distinctions in the white room? Yeah, so you can't make subtle distinctions because then it starts to be about texture and it starts to be about, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that was definitely good and interesting. Um, I saw some other stuff that I wasn't that hot to trot about. But, you know, that's also a good thing, I think. You know, I was thinking when you said uh, seeing a sh a, an exhibit more than once and you start to look at it differently, more in depth, and you become aware of other issues around it that you hadn't the first time. And I was thinking that for a curator putting together an exhibit, one of the tricks of it must be that you're so familiar with the material, how to make it so that even a person who's just seeing it for the first time, <coughs> excuse me, can, uh, can get the gist of it yeah, or can appreciate it and then how to make it so that it still remains uh, fascinating when you come back again. Yeah. I think curating is a fascinating art that either sort of makes or breaks a museum in many ways. Didn't I thought from looking at your photos from that exhibit that there were a ton of tourists where in the past I've seen there were a lot more sort of New York-y looking people. It's clearly become the one of the places to go. Well, I think it's always been one of the places to go. I think part of it is when I went, you know, yeah. I think part of it, it, it's been sort of uh, on the day go. And a lot of times the photos that I share from MoMA are from like an opening or something, which is a New York-y crowd, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I think, I think MoMA's location in the middle of Midtown, which is where most tourists are anyway, uh -huh. means that a lot of people end up landing there. You know, their big construction expansion is exciting. I'm anxious to see what happens with that. 
Aren't they? They're building a gigantic new. Yeah, they are. They're building a gigantic new expansion. So I think it's going to basically double the size. Yeah. Okay, and then anything else from New York? You got a haircut. I got a hair. I got a haircut, and I I uh, think it looks good. So I like it. That makes me happy. Uh, People may wonder why you go to New York for your haircut. Okay. It's a guy. It's a, so here's, yeah. I'll just tell you the story, which is this, which is I have curly hair, which is sort of like wavy curly, but it's naturally curly and it has t several different curl textures in it. I have tried to get my hair cut multiple different places, uh, including dedicated curly hair salons, including all kinds of places. And I have had so many different problems over the years with people who, no matter the instructions, don't understand that as curly hair gets shorter, it springs tighter and tighter and tighter. So even though when it's longer, it may look one way, if you cut two inches off, you actually now have cut like four inches off, you know, because it springs Also, up. your hair, like underneath it's yes, straight underneath it's straight on top it's curly like in the back it's one kind of curl and in the front it's another kind of curl so it's your just a yes mess. my hair is a mess it's, it's it's as confused as i am it's it's as more is more as i am so i found ray when i lived in new york and he was the first person i went to who like i didn't have to give him like serious strict instructions and i loved it every single time i came out of the salon and so he actually left the salon that I originally started seeing him at. And of course, they have no no idea where he went. So I went hunting him down. I actually found him through his Instagram. So lucky that that thing exists. Um, and he had opened his own salon. So I had one haircut at the salon I previously went to with a new person. I did not like it. And I was like, no, I must find Ray. So that's when I began my Instagram hunt. And I found him and... He's great and I love his new salon and he's the nicest, sweetest guy. And so I, since I only get my hair cut twice a year, maybe three times a year, it's worth it to me to schlep it to New York if I'm there anyway to get it done. So that is my reasoning behind why I go to New York to get my hair cut because I trust what him. What I like is when he does your hair, you don't look like your hair's just been cut you just look like you. Yeah, that's what I like too is it doesn't look like – it just looks like me. It makes me feel comfortable. And also his, his really good colorist because my hair is almost black. And so he really does a good job because people all the time say to me, oh, I love the color of your hair. And like even hairdressers say to me, is it real or is it not? And I'm, and I'm always happy to say, it's fake. My hair is almost black. So it's worth it going yeah, to New York. Yeah, he's a good guy. And he really is supportive of artists and stuff like that, too, which I really like. So we just said Fourth of July and you were on Instagram and you commented that it seemed like everyone was spending Fourth of July in Maine. Well, at least everyone I follow. It was sort of amazing to me. I feel like everybody on Earth went to Maine for Fourth of July, which makes Maine very, very full of people, but... It was just kind of funny because I started to realize, like, people who I know don't know each other, but who I follow, I was like, oh, I feel like they're at the same beach right now. <laughs> so, so we were not in Maine, so we were left out. We're sad and alone. But you are going to the Cape, so I am going to the there Cape. are probably a few people there. That's true, which is not Maine, but still, a good place to beach it. I am not a beach person. I know, it is both hot and outside there. And they, yes, if they could have a beach that was 
cool air conditioned and inside i, I might consider it pool but it again has a problem which is it has water which i know is also another problem <laughs> some of us are delicate flowers <laughs> and require a strict temperature and it's air true, quality control i don't think you'd like a hot house i feel like I feel like maybe a flower is the wrong thing. Maybe you're more like an ice cream cone that requires a cold refrigerated space. Anything else to tell us? No, not that I can think of. I'm planning on bringing my sketchbook to the beach and uh, doing some drawing while I'm there and some relaxing. And finishing up your 100 days faces. Oh, God. I know that. I mean, I'm. What will you do with yourself when you no longer have to do that? Be happy with my life. I will say I'm, I'm ready for this project to be over. I just, the only reason I am going to make it to a hundred is because I'm not a quitter and I will get it done and I will feel very satisfied when it's done, but this, I'm not going to lie. This has not been easy. Aww. It was very, very fun for a while and now it's just work. Why did you take it on? Because I thought it would be very, very fun for a long time. And I thought I would get better at faces, which to be fair, I have gotten better at faces. So I'm kind of being a baby and a whiner about it. And like, you know, I I am glad that I did it. And looking back at all those faces, I am enormously proud of myself. And I have created a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have created otherwise. But it does every day feel like a rock around my neck that I have to like, oh, God, I have to do a face. You know? Well, but it's almost over. Soon I will no longer. Exactly. I will no longer be Sisyphus rolling this freaking rock up the hill. I will soon be able to let the rock go. And be glad of yes, it. Yes, exactly. And then I'm sure I will in 30 days forget how unhappy I was and start a new project that I will later regret as well. <laughs> Every time you tell me you're stressed, I say, well, stop taking on these extra things. And then I say, I'm going to. And then so what I does that show you later when I'm unstressed. So it means you don't listen to your mother. That's what every story comes around to. I see. Short-term memory is what I'm thinking. Exactly. Anyway. Okay. I have nothing more. I'm drained. Okay. Well, lovely as always, mother. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, save some sand from the beach for you. Thank you so much. Don't track it in my house. I'll do my best. So, uh, as always, you can find me at balzerdesigns.typepad.com. You may notice that the URL for my main website has changed. It's now juliebalzer.com. Um, do leave us your comments or questions at balzerdesigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast. That's all one word, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Be sure to subscribe to us in iTunes and leave us a review if you really, really love the podcast. And thanks so much for listening and subscribing. We'll see you next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. <laughs>